Hi, Toma. Welcome to the On Path podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Hi, Vijay. Nice to meet you. Uh, so just to begin, it would be really interesting to hear about your background. Where did you grow up and specifically how did your childhood influence your career path? So I grew up in, in France, in Paris, actually, in the 90s. So it was, I think at that time, it was like a, like the beginning of, of the IT of, and with, with Windows 95 and, and Windows XP later and so on. So at that time, at that time, we had a computer at home. My father is a programmer and, and my mother is working in the marketing. So thanks to that, I think we had very early a computer at home. And I used to, I'm not sure if you remember this game, but I used to play a lot with Adibu. Adibu was, was like a kind of a learning game for kids. And I think it was the, the first times I, I used the computer. It was around maybe the, maybe 1995, something like that with Windows 95, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. And, and then later I, I grew up and in the twenties, in the two thousands, I mainly you know, started to use a little bit more the computers for MSN, IRC as well, mm -hmm. downloading music and videos. And I used to go to some friends' place and we used to use the computers and so on for yeah. just having fun with it and downloading some games and all that stuff. Yeah. And I think it was the beginning. And, and I think since far, as far as I remember, I think I always had a computer at home mm -hmm. and we didn't have like, like video games and all that stuff, but we had we had the computers and some video games on the computers, but no, how do you say, no, not like a PlayStation and all that stuff. Yeah. And and yeah, I think that's mainly how uh, I use technology. I remember once, I'm not sure if you used to use like MSN and uh, IRC and all that stuff. Yeah. And I remember that we used to send like joke programs, like for example, something that will froze your computer and all that stuff. And I remember once I download one of the, the programs that a friend sent to me over IRC or MSN. I don't remember exactly. And I completely broke the, the computer. And at that time I, I was devastated because my mother just bought this new computer and it was at that time pretty expensive. Yeah. And so I, I really thought I was breaking the computer and so on. And then I started to just reboot the machine and trying to understand what was happened and understanding the program and so on. And I think it, it just gets my interest at that age. Mm -hmm. And I continue to use it computer until later. Yeah. And in those early days, you were using kind of entertainment to, to, to mess around. Did you already have a sense that this is something that you want to really get deep into, spend your life working with? Or was it... Was that something that came later? No, not at all. Actually, I think at that time, I think I was 10, around 10. I thought that computer wasn't for me and, and I just use it for as a tool, but nothing else. Like it, it wasn't like something that it was interesting to play with it. Mm -hmm. But I, n I never saw that I will continue to use computer by growing up and and do my career using computer on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, so with that episode where you downloaded this program and then it caused the computer to freeze and then you started rebooting. How much tinkering did you start to do after that with, with computers and machines in general? I think it's, it was interesting for me to understand that I didn't broken the, I didn't broke the familial computer. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just wanted like a small revenge to my friends. So I started to just send back at that time. I wasn't programming. I was just sneaking into internet and getting this, uh, this piece of code and send back, send it back to my friends. 
So yeah, I think uh, that was it. Yeah, yeah. So let's move forward to maybe your uh, university years. I believe you studied IT security, right? What what made you choose that? So at first, I wanted to do a business school, but uh, I was not really good at doing the high school and the college. And mainly, so I really wanted to work actually and to start earning some money and be independent and so on. And so I wanted to do like a business school, but I wanted to do the business school in part time. I think we call that in a sandwich course when you are working and studying in the same time. And it was very difficult to do that 50 to 20 years ago because it wasn't so democratized like today. And also working in, in marketing or business when you don't have any experience is a bit complicated. Actually, it was complicated. So uh, instead to go to the university after my graduation, I went to where my father was working. And it was actually my first, my first work experience. And he was working at, at a French company called Doris Engineering. Mm -hmm. And he hired me for summer and for one year, actually, in the IT, IT department. So I was mainly fixing computers, helping users how to install some programs and also like moving the computers. And it was mainly like, like, like just fixing computer like IT IT help desk the, the very basic yeah. but during these years I learned a lot of, about about the system the networks how computers works how the active directory works at that time how how a computer is comp connected to the rest of the network on on a company and so on mm -hmm. so after that year I decided to get back on track on my study and I went to a bachelor degree and started like that until the master degree and finally get my diploma in 2014. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that was 15 years ago, right? 2008 that you were in Doris Engineering. A yeah. lot has changed since then. But what comes to mind is like still being the same 15 years on, what do you think hasn't changed? So I've, I think the basic hasn't changed, like how works a computer, how works a network a system and so on. Mm -hmm. I think it's always the, the case. I think the users hasn't changed so much. Uh, they, are, they have changed because right now they are more aware of, of what's going on. Yeah. But there is still many things that have changed, actually. Mm -hmm. Like the way we are using computers today is nothing compared to what we used to do 15 years before. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you've changed a lot as well, right? In those 15 years, you've, you've gained so many experiences. And what, one question I always like to ask is, if you could give advice to yourself at the start of your career, what would that advice be? There, there were probably things that you were concerned about that you thought were really important that now in retrospect, you realize maybe actually didn't matter that much or maybe the other way around. I think if I could give me an advice back in that time, it would be to follow my intuitions and to not listen to people. It may sound a bit cheesy because it sounds like a, like a common, common advice, but I think, I, th I think it's probably the best advice that I could give to my younger me, mm -hmm. especially because I sometimes learn about myself that I wasn't capable of doing something and so on. And I always proved the, the opposite. So I think just follow my intuition. And sometimes also I had to, I didn't follow my intuition and I missed some great opportunity. So I think that's the advice I would give to myself 15 years before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, can you think of any kind of specific example of where maybe somebody questioned your ability to do something and then you, you pushed through and you realized you could do it? 
Yeah, sure. I can give you actually a real a previous memory. So when I, after working for one year in the IT support at desk department, I, I get back on track on my study. And so I started my, my bachelor degree. And the first year, I think I, I was working in the same time during all that time. So I was studying and working in the same time. And I think I underestimated the amount of work I should, I should have done at that time during the first year because I learned about um, the C language. Mm -hmm. I learned about the network, SQL, SQL, and all that technology and all that stuff. And it was a, a lot of stuff that I, I discovered at that time. And I think I, didn't, I did not really invest the work that I should have done to, to pass to the second years. Mm -hmm. So at the end of these years, the director told me that I didn't get this enough score to go in the, the second year and and I had to double my year and to pay the and to pay again the first year. But I didn't have any money at that time and my mother didn't have so much money as well. What I did, I went to to his office and I begged him to to let me go to the, the second years because I was sure that I, I I wanted to invest more time in my study and to get my diploma and so on. Yeah. And he said no. Okay. And I said and I said, Okay, listen to me. I will go to another school and I will come back to you with my diploma. And then what I did, so it's a bit funny because I, it was the first it was the first year, and to go to another school, I had to cheat my my scores actually on my I don't know to how you call that like the scores at the end of the year, mm, yeah. And I had to cheat that a little bit to to be able to go to another school, yeah. So that's what I did, and I went to an, another shitty school. Mm -hmm. And like the program wasn't really well, that the, even the students and the professors wasn't really involved in the, in, in the teaching and everything. Mm. So I really worked my ass alone during this year and I finally get my diploma. Yeah. So that's one of the, the cases I was thinking about because he told me, I remember this director, he told me that I will never have the, the diploma. Mm. And, and finally, with a lot of work and a lot of motivation and self self-discipline and everything, mm. I was able to get the diploma. So Yeah. And did you get a yeah, chance to reconnect with him afterwards? And, <laughs> and no, I never get back, actually. <laughs> I never get back. I think I should have done, I should have get back, but I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, in, in our careers, many times it tends to be these kind of inflection points, right? Like these points where suddenly it opens up all these new possibilities, changes the direction of our career. What would you say was the first such inflection point in your career? You mean for working in cybersecurity? Or? Yeah, like maybe it was uh, getting your role at McAfee or maybe it was a specific investigation you worked on that really opened up possibilities. If you think there was such a point. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think I started to realize that uh, uh, pretty much uh, uh, very early, actually. Uh, when I started to work with computer on a daily basis, I started to try to understand what we could do more with it. Like programming is like is basically a way to to do whatever you want with a computer, and it's amazing because you can pretty much build whatever what what you want. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I started at that time to just to mess around with computers and trying to code a little bit, and I saw that. I wasn't sure that I wanted to continue in, in working in, in, in IT in general, but I was sure that I wanted to invest more time into it because if I have no options, I was sure that IT and cybersecurity was something that will 
gain more interest and more and would be more important over the years. So I decided to just work more on that, understand a little bit more how works the computer, how works the security. And it was basically hacking at that time, like just trying what you want to do with the computer, trying to bypass the security in place and all that stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I just decided to continue in cybersecurity and to follow this path. Yeah. Yeah. And within cybersecurity, what would you say is your specialization now? What is your area of focus? So I'm mainly working in threat intelligence and security research. So I have been working on threat investigation for the past the past almost 10 years now and I've been working in incident response and yeah my work is mainly related to threat investigation but I also work on tooling and new technologies and at the moment everyone is speaking about LLMs and AI and all that stuff mm -hmm. and there is a synergy with uh, cybersecurity so I'm also investing more time into that and understanding the technology the risk what you can do with it and so on yeah yeah my main uh, skills is threat intelligence my Malware analysis and uh, an incident response. Yeah. So now in this decade of working in this area, what would you say has been the most memorable or exciting investigation that you worked on? Yeah, so, so I've been working on, on several investigations and some of them are told in the book. Yeah. One of them, which was really big for me, was the NotPetya case because I was in the front line in 2017. So the NotPetya was like a like a big outbreak around the world. I'm not sure if you remember, but it was spreading across the world very fastly. And it was the act of a nation state. And a lot of uh, companies have been hit by this, this attack. And I was working at McAfee at that time, working in uh, incident response. So I went, I went to the customer site and I've been working like day and night on the incident during two weeks. And it was very intense, very exhaustive, very challenging. And I think it was very memorable for me because that was the first time I realized that a cyber attacks can have consequences, not only on data and computer and so on, but also on people and on their daily life. Because when you face a big cyber attack like that and all the people cannot work because of the cyber attack and they close to lost their job, actually, mm. it's like they can't work and the company cannot do about that. Yeah. And it's very impressive to see the impact that a cyber attack can have on people as well. Yeah. And it's more and more like that today. And yeah, I've been working on several other cases, mainly from nation states, from attacks from North Korea, from Russia mainly, yeah. and a lot of ransomware cases as well. Yeah. And, and talk us through that on-site investigation a bit more. Like, how did it happen? Did, was it just like you had to pack your bags, get ready, go, and then it was... What was the daily routine like during those two weeks? It probably wasn't much of a routine, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, when I was working at, at McAfee, it was in 2017. So I was working since at McAfee since 2015. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was mainly working in incident response. So I used to travel uh, a lot for outbreak for different customers and so on. So I always had like a small luggage at home, which was always ready for leaving and going somewhere for an incident response. Or, uh, yeah. Anyway. And this one was actually in Paris. Okay. And, and we've been called, I remember it was an afternoon. It was just after lunch and we've been called by the customers. So we went on site and it was two weeks. Is two weeks working on a security incident like that was very intense. And there is no, not many, there, there, 
we cannot talk about a routine, but it's more in that way when you arrive on site for a security incident, it's like the customer is waiting for you to find the solution. So you have a huge responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah. And, and you have to find a way to understand what's going on, investigate the threat, understand the malware and so on. And in the same time, asking the, asking the, to the customers the information that you need, such as the logs and everything. Yeah. And this one was such a big event that we were multiple, multiple companies working on this outbreak. So there is multiple teams. Yeah. So it was every teams had his own, his own area mm -hmm. of investigation. And ultimately, we had to synchronize and find a threat and find a solution and mainly help the customer to rebuild everything and eradicate the, the threat. So, yeah, it's, yeah. And is it like, is it, do you set up a war room? Do you have like briefings every four hours? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, this one was very sensitive. So we have a, we had a, a war room. Some people stay at night during the incident. We've been working without knowing what time was it. Mm. We used to, to sync with the management to do a regular checkpoint with them about what we understand about the threat and the attack and so on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So pretty intense, the, those two weeks. Yeah. And what is the feeling like coming out of that? Like when you leave, is it like things are almost back to normal or is there still a lot of work left to do? No, my role at that time was to investigate the incident, to eradicate the threat, understand the threat, potentially understand the geopolitical implications and, and the context and potentially as well the motivation from, from the attackers and so on. Yeah. But, but after that, especially with that case, which was like a destroying case, mm. the samples, the malware was actually destroying all the computers. So there is, there was like a big rebuild phase. And, and at that time, it was some other people that was coming there and help rebuild the system and so on. But it was months. I think it, it lasts something like months and months to finally rebuild the system to normal. Yeah. This one was really big and it was global. Like every, a lot of companies around the world have been impacted by this threat. Yeah. Exciting. So let's switch gears a bit. That was in France, as you mentioned. Now you're in Australia. So talk us through how that happened. What inspired you to move from France to Australia? I always wanted to move abroad to another country and just to practice my English, obviously, and also to just to discover another country and another culture as well. And I tried to move in another country back to 2015. But at that time, I think my English wasn't, wasn't so comfortable and... and and uh, I didn't get the job that I wanted. Uh, so it, it took me quite some time to, 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 to finally move to another country. And, and I knew Australia because I went there in 2014 for a road trip. So I, I knew Australia, how was it, the culture and everything. And I, when I get this opportunity, I think it, I thought it was a good one mm -hmm. uh, for me and my family to move there. And uh, we just decided to try it. Yeah. And so currently you work at Microsoft, right? You've been there a couple of years. How did you land your role there? Was it just a regular application process? Was it through a referral? So after six years at McAfee, my six years at McAfee was awesome. The team was super, super nice. I learned a lot. I had great managers, passionate people from the team. But after six years, it was for me like becoming a little bit too comfortable. I'm not sure if you know what I mean. I really love the team. I really love the work we did and so on. But I think I wanted another challenge. 
And one of my ex-colleagues at McAfee went, I've been hired by Microsoft at that time, and I think we had a discussion, and he mentioned that there, there were some opportunities and so on. So I just decided to, to apply through him, mm -hmm. and, I did, and I did the interviews and finally get the, the job. Yeah. Very nice. So now that you've been in cybersecurity for over a decade, what would you say is key to getting into this field for somebody who's maybe in university or just got out of university or maybe, you know, in the middle of their career, but they want to make a switch into this? What would you say is key about getting into cybersecurity? I think the key in getting into cybersecurity is to be connected with the cybersecurity community through channels, um, social network, security conferences. And also one thing which is really important, I believe so, is having like a web corner with, for example, a blog, a GitHub page, something that you can demonstrate, something that you can show to the people, sharing the work that you are doing with the others. I think it's critical today. Not, I'm not saying like sharing like basic stuff and so on, but sharing the work that you are doing if you are involved in an open source project, for example, or if you analyze the latest samples or the latest vulnerabilities, or even if it's something that you did for, I don't know, your studies or just for fun, mm -hmm. this is something that you can share with the rest of the community. And I think having that way or that part of the, the web that you own and where you can demonstrate what you can do, I think it's really critical in cybersecurity today. It shows the passion, it shows your skills, and it shows your involvement into the, the security community. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's, it's so much more powerful to actually demonstrate it with work that you have and that you've done and that you can showcase. Um, that makes sense. And actually, that, that, exactly. that leads perfectly into the next area I want to talk about. You're a really prolific content creator. You've written a book recently. You, you have Security Break, which is your blog where you publish a lot of things. You've created video courses created a lot of videos that are available on infographics. Before we get into some of the specifics, just help us understand what inspired you to uh, become a content creator, right? Because obviously it's something you do beyond your day job. Uh, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes persistence. So w what motivates you to do it? That's an interesting question. And I think I started to do that when I was working at McAfee and mainly when I was working with the team, we used to work on threat investigation and publish blogs, extensive blogs about the investigation that we did and the analysis and everything. And I think I started to, to do that at that time, first, just to share with the community the work that we, we did and, uh, and also to just to demonstrate what we used to do in the team. And then... I don't know. I think I think it. I didn't really thought about it. It's it was a little bit natural. I started to publish a little bit more on Twitter, on on blogs, and so on. If I remember when I was in the university, I used to have a, a blogs as well, where I used to push some of the the notes that I have take that I took uh, during the class and share that notes with with my my friends and so on. And yeah. I don't know. After some time, I started to be involved in more open source uh, projects as well and starting to, to code a little bit more mm -hmm. and share that with the rest of the community and so on. Yeah. And also about the infographic, the video and everything, I think 
I think I've been influenced uh, by my mother, which was which is working in marketing and all that in communication and so on. And I think I was influenced a little bit by by her because as far as I remember, she always told me that it, it was really important to present in a good way a document, a presentation, and so on. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if you... I'm also very... For me, it's also very important to provide something which is easy to read, easy to digest, fun to read, fun to... That's also why I spend uh, quite some time on my presentation when I do uh, a conference, for example. Because for me, I'm not sure if you heard about the death by PowerPoint, but for me, uh, having a, a huge PowerPoint with a lot of text... For me, it's, uh, it's really disrespectful for the audience. So I don't like this kind of presentation. Yeah. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do the opposite and to, to give to my audience something which is very fun to read, to easy to understand, and so on. Yeah. And also, last but not the least, I, I think that you can be the best at what you are doing. But if you cannot, if you cannot explain simply and, and show your work in a good way, that means your your content and your work will not be noticed by the people. If you- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it beyond the content. The, I wanted. I'd like to talk a bit about your book, Visual Threat Intelligence, where you really explore concepts of cyber threat intelligence. But you have a nice way of doing it, where you have an explanation and then you have a visual recap. So talk us through that process a bit, including how did you come up with those visuals. Did you sketch it out and have Illustrator do it? Did you do it yourself? So basically, I started to do some visual when I was working as an incident response a responder for customers. And I used to, like when I investigate uh, a malware and reverse engineering everything and understand what the malware was doing, I used to create this visual for the customers because it was more easy for the management and for the team to understand in a single glance what the malware was doing rather than going through my extensive report with all the assembly screenshots and piece of code and everything. At that time, I was doing that exclusively for customers back in 2016. And and then I started to do it more and more to incorporate these visuals into my blogs and so on. And I started to see that the people really liked this kind of visuals because it's easy to share, it's easy to understand. And basically, you don't need to spend a lot of time reading a full blogs with, with a lot of information. You just have to check the visual and understand directly what the malware is doing. I'm not saying that an extensive report is not useful. Mm. I'm saying that we we always need, obviously, this extensive report. But I think most people are not reading this kind of of report except experts or malware experts, malware analysis, threat researcher, and so on. But for the rest of the people, having visuals is mainly, as as we, we said, visuals worth a thousand words an image worth a thousand words yeah yeah so i think it's more easy to have this visual to understand that and and yeah i do it myself it's a long process to be honest like when one infographic can take me several days sometimes several weeks to really put everything together and put the different details because i don't want the visuals to be to be like like a resume about the stuff. I want the visual to incorporate all the real information. I don't want to miss any important information, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it takes me a lot of times to really, to really uh, see how I can put everything together and all the information. And for the book, 
I saw the book as a concept. For me, it's really a concept. I really wanted to provide something which is very different to what we used to have in computer science book. And the goal was to explain a concept with text and to have the visuals on the right and both information in synergy and help the reader to really understand the, the concept that we are uh, discussing. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a whole process. Yeah. <laughs> and I find one dilemma as a content creator is do you keep refining or do you push it out, right? The, with the visual, you can continue to you know, work on it or it's, at some point you have to say it's done, it's ready. So how do you think about that? Do you have some rules of thumbs that you use? Well, or? That, that's, a, that, that's a good question. And I think if I have listened to me, I, w- I will still be working on the book, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> adding more visuals or, or changing some stuff and so on. Yeah. But at some point, it was, I spent a lot of time working on this book, more than two years, actually. And uh, at some point, I think, I think you have to let it go and see what the people are, are thinking about it. And you can still get back on it and do some change. I can still work on the second versions of the book, adding more visuals, changing some of them, updating some of them, and so on. So yeah, it's very, it's a very interesting question because if I would have listened to me, I would still be working on the book at the moment. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think at some point you have to let it go and see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. And especially with the book, right? There's that, there's that point where you publish it. And then, like you said, you can always come back and do a yeah. second or third edition, but it's a bit different than with, exactly. with some of the other things where you can continue to tweak it uh, in an ongoing way. And maybe tell us a little bit about the Unprotect project. What is it? And Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. So the, the Unprotect project is an open database dedicated to malware evasion techniques. And I started this project in 2015. And when I was actually working in incident response, like I used to go to customer site and uh, a lot of customers were saying, I don't know why the antivirus uh, didn't detect this threat. I don't know why the sandbox, the super expensive sandbox that we bought didn't uh, detect correctly this piece of code and so on. So I started this project first as, a, as an Excel sheet, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like many good projects. <laughs> and it was just to... Yeah, that's, that's right. And it was just to help the customers understand the different techniques and why some specific piece of code wasn't detected and so on. And so the, the project started to be a bit bigger. It then, then decided to move to an online version and it was a wiki at that time. And in 20, uh, one of my friends, Jean-Pierre Le Sueur, uh, which is based in France, joined the project as well. And we started to rebuild completely the project with a better database and add more content. So today, I would say it's the largest uh, database about malware evasion techniques. And what you can find into it is a classification of the evasion techniques. Mm-hmm. You can also have for each of the, the techniques descriptions more resources. We also try to put one or more code snippets that demonstrate the specific evasion technique. And we also try to incorporate detection rules such as Yara, Sigma, and Kappa so that everyone can understand a little bit more about the techniques, how it works, and how it can be detected from with an, ED, an EDR, even a Yara rules, and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's mainly an open database. We have a lot of work still on on it. The database is constantly improving. The community is helping as well, improving the database. And we also have some some fun uh, coming on. We have different projects 
that hopefully will be released very soon. Yeah. And, uh, and also some, some merch, some merchandising and t-shirts for the people that are helping us contributing and so on. Oh, nice. And so you've talked about the importance of community, of connecting with other people in security as being really key to succeeding in this field. If you were to look back, who would you say are some of the top influences, the top positive influences in your career? Or maybe it's just, it's, maybe it's organizations. It could be individuals or organizations. So I think there is, uh, there is many positive influence in my career. Uh, I think I've met some great people in the community. They, they really have some people that are really eager to help you, to help you growing up and so on. At McAfee, it was very specific relationships with my teammate because it's the atmospheres, the way we used to work was really unique, at least to me. Yeah. And, and it was very important. I think it, it was very influential and very decisive in the rest of my career. Mm. And also for sure my fathers and my mothers because they have been like I've been working in IT thanks to my fathers and I've been doing content creating content and, and doing all that stuff thanks to my mother so I think they are they have really a great positive influence for me yeah and and lastly I think the community I will not say not everyone in the community obviously but but the people I used to interact with and everything and yeah yeah Thomas, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific to hear your story. And I'll include links you, to the Unstack Project, your new book, and all the great content that you've got there. Thank you. Thank you very much.